Welcome to the uh, Moneyball Manager Podcast, where we talk about the state of sales management and uh, specifically sales coaching. My name is Tim Dillon. I'm one of the principals here at Copilot, and we're joined today by our host, the founder of Copilot and Scale Up On Demand, Doug Johnson, and Billy Bob Brigman. Billy Bob is, has an extensive background in sales and in particular working with sales leaders. He's worked for companies like VMware, Workday, and Pivotal, uh, and has recently started Sales Leader U, which I definitely want to dig into and, and learn a bit more about today. Uh, so, Billy Bob, we're really happy to, to have you here today. Thanks a lot, Tim and Doug. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm sure it'll be an enlightening conversation for sure. And I usually let Doug kind of kick these things off. So, Doug, without further ado, I'll, uh, I'll let you kind of dive in first. I thought you were going to just flip it right then and say, I usually let Doug kick <laughs> off, but I'm doing it today. And I was like, great. Okay. <laughs> well, I can. I'm happy to. <laughs> uh, well, hey, how about that? I'll flip it. Do you want to kick All right, it off? Great, great. Well, usually what we like to do first is, is we, we do like to kind of dive in and, and allow you to kind of like give us just a sense, you know, of kind of, of your journey throughout your sales career. Um, I do find it obviously very interesting, certainly because we've never talked to anyone with the, the, the kind of background that you have. Um, and what's of particular interest to me is like, is, is maybe starting off your, your time at West Point. Um, that obviously, I would imagine, probably shaped uh, some of your uh, thoughts and actions around leadership just in general. Um, so can you maybe take us through kind of your journey? You know, how did you get into sales? Maybe starting with, with uh, your time there and, and, and uh, kind of take us through t- today, if you would. Yeah, well, I think, you know, West Point and then my time as an Army officer after West Point, you know, were great foundational leadership experiences. And then after I got out of the Army, I started a software company with one of my West Point classmates. And that experience as an entrepreneur uh, and combined with leadership really set the stage for my sales career. And so after, you know, I had multiple ventures and opportunity, you know, that I was experimenting with as an entrepreneur, Uh, the life of an entrepreneur is like these wild ups and downs of just getting, you know, celebrating wins followed immediately by getting your butt kicked. (laughs) And, uh, so I, when I discovered enterprise software sales after years of trying to grind it out as an entrepreneur, I could not believe that there was a career where you could make, you had the upside of enterprise software sales without the risk of an entrepreneur I couldn't believe that existed and that I hadn't heard about it till then. Right? And so when I got an opportunity, I was, I actually was playing basketball with a, a software sales manager and he thought the way that I rebounded and played defense was, uh, you know, predicted a good <laughs> software sales, uh, experience. And I had never had, it was, it was really tricky to get the first job, but what I believed because I had never had professional sales training, but I believed that the skills of an entrepreneur, of the constant experimenting, learning, adapting, combined with leadership were would be really good ingredients for selling. And, uh, you know, I, I, for 16 years, I was an individual contributor 
uh, seller. And after those 16 years, I believe now with more conviction than I believe then that those absolutely are the ingredients for success as a seller, because ultimately it's, I think it's a leadership exercise. You're you've to succeed in sales. You have to get a lot of people in your own company that don't report to you. And a lot of people in the buying organization that don't report to you to follow you. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if you have know all the sales tricks at the end of the day, that really is, it's about leadership. Do I believe enough in your plan, Doug, that even though I don't have any <laughs> one forcing me to, that I'm going to, you know, submit my plan to the side and kind of get behind your plan. That is, is a leadership exercise more than anything else. In the 16 years, Prior to that and now, certainly, you have a perspective on what leaders need, um, thus what you're doing now. And I'm still, we're going to certainly get into that pretty quickly. What have you seen in terms of the evolution or uh, opinions that you've had that have changed over time about the state of a manager's ability, like a first-time manager's ability to be successful, especially if they haven't led before? Um and you've been in, you've, you've, you've seen smaller organizations. You've been a part of Cognos. I don't know how many employees they had when you started, but there's certainly less than a thousand, which they have now. How has your opinion changed over time about the managers? I think my opinions changed over time just as sales has shifted over time. When I was first learning how to sell my manager's responsibilities were largely recruit a great team and coach them on deals. The demands of leaders today are a lot. There there are a lot of other things in addition to those. It's not just as simple as let me go recruit a good team and just help them get their deals closed. There's now all of these operational demands. I, I saw a quote in a Gartner article recently that it just resonated with me greatly. And it was a chief sale. They quoted a chief sales officer who said that first line sales managers have become the junk drawer of go to market organizations. And what he meant by that was just everybody in the in the org just wants to throw more things. Oh, let's have the first line sales managers do it. Hey, we've got a new product release. Let's get the first line sales managers to make sure we get the message out. We have a new compliance HR exercise about working from home and what that entails. Let's make sure we get the first line managers to make sure this is happening. We have new Salesforce and operational requirements and 14 new things we want to track. Let's throw all of those on a first line manager dashboard. And so that is the biggest thing that has changed is now your job as a sales leader, your biggest challenge is not coaching reps. It's managing yourself, trying to figure out how do I prioritize all these things that are coming at me. And how in the world does a first time manager who is promoted into the role, this is a rhetorical question, uh, but is promoted into the role 
very quickly, given the trends right now, progression through an individual contributor role into a first-time manager role. It seems like such a hard task especially as you paint a picture of the evolving asks that have been made, because that's all I know, because I've only seen the last 10 years or eight years, and I've seen that, like, what exactly what you're saying. It seems like a daunting task. Yeah, and I think most of them, uh, just like anything else, when you're doing something new, I think most of them, if you talk to them two to three years in and ask them, one of the things that I find is a pretty common experience for first-time managers is three to six months into the role, they're starting to question the decision to go into management. So a lot of them are, and I get, I get asked a lot by account execs who are considering going into management and what are the pros and cons or how do I, you know, find the right role. And I often challenge them first to ask themselves, why do you think you want to be a manager? And a lot of them will start to describe pressure of perception. It's not, hey, I want to be in leadership or I have, you know, I want that. It becomes, you know what? I feel like at this point in my career, I'm supposed to be <laughs> moving into that role. And it and and that that can be that can make life really miserable if it's just you're doing it because you're trying to you know react to other people's perception, then all of a sudden you find out really quickly just just uh, how different of a job it it really is an entirely different career path. It's not the next level of sales. It's like you just you might as well think of it as like I was a sale like to put it in a sports analogy. It's like you were the Michael Jordan basketball player as an individual contributor. We're going to ask you to go play double A baseball. It's not it. They just it, they think my sell skills are going to prepare me for success because I'll hey I'm just going to be able to influence that many more deals and they, they get shocked by how little of that job is about customer interactions and selling deals. And they, they always are surprised by the like administrative and operational burdens of the job. And if you're not ready for that, it can be a little bit jarring, but what I'll say, Doug is, for, for anybody that's listening to this that finds themselves in that zone right now for their six to nine months into that role and they're questioning their life choices, right? I think what a lot of sales leaders would say, if you can just hang in there and get through that learning curve, once the, the game does start to slow down, and I think a lot of sales leaders will say it eventually becomes a really rewarding uh, role. But it, it does. I think you have to just build into your expectations that the first year or two is just going to be a lot of friction as you're climbing that that learning curve of figuring out what really deserves my best energy. I want to ask you a question there because um, you said something interesting where you said, you know, a lot of times uh, you'll get asked, right, or you'll advise people who are looking to make that next step. And when you ask them, why do you want to do this? Like, you know, what's motivating you to do it? What sort of answers would like 
would you be looking for to, to kind of give you the, uh, the indication that you're like, yeah, this, this might be a good path for them. And the reason, I guess the reason I'm asking that, right. Is because if somebody is listening, who is a few months into that, uh, in, into that role, it, it may help them think about what they may or may not prioritize as a, as a, as a key skill or a key focus area for them. So if you ask somebody that question, what's something that you would kind of be listening for that might give you an indication that they might be good at it? One of the things I like to ask is how much time are you already spending helping out your colleagues? So I'd want to see some indication because they will often say things like, you know what, I just want to start to help others and coach others. And the follow-up question becomes, okay, well, how much are you doing already? You know, how much time do you spend with your SDR teaching them about what the full cycle does? How much help are you providing to new hires on your team, like peers that have joined more recently than you? And if, if they're already doing those things, I think that's a proof point that it's not just words that they they actually mean that right and if they're if they're doing those things already and they find that really rewarding and they say you know what i love presenting to the new hire classes and i love helping new hires get up to speed and i really enjoy you know learning from as well as teaching sdrs that would be a, a, an indicator that okay you're going to do have the right motivation there are others who say, I love this business and I now want to learn the operational aspects because I really love this business and I want to be uh, in a leadership role. And to do that, I know I need to learn these things. I think that's another indication that, you, you know, you're going to be able to endure. If you've got the right motivation and interest in that learning curve period where things are really uncomfortable, you're more easily able to endure through that. If it's because, hey, selling is just too hard and I think the manager job is going to be easier, which is a surprisingly common real answer, that is going to be a shocking uh, that will be a really shocking experience. If you, if you're thinking, Hey, this is going to be easier. I'm just going to tell other people what to do instead of me having to do it. That can be a pretty jarring reality when you find out exactly what that job is. Or if it's just, Hey, I feel like, you know, my neighbors will be more impressed with me if I say I'm in manager. And if, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now 30, and I'm not a manager. Does that mean I, my, you know, I'm just my career track is behind that. That would also be something where I feel like um, they would regret moving into management for that reason. It seems like there's a, a bit of self-worth self like <clears throat> imposed perceptions of others. That is a significant piece of this. And probably uh, a component of a lot of people that go into that first time management role a lot more than should be. Well, I would like to go back to the prioritization and the decision-making they go through. Certainly decision-making for me, uh, I like systems and feedback loops. I, I'm just engrossed in, in, in how 
decisions and processes are made. Uh, I'm an engineer, so I, I just I have to have that. But military decision making is it's like it's some of the most sound approaches to making decisions that eliminate as many of the risks and biases that an individual might have. Um, and I don't know the degree to which you're exposed, but I'm going to guess. Um, and as, as you look at the pri- the ability for a manager to prioritize and work on things, they're making some some um, false assumptions. Like as you look at them, you're like, that's not the right approach. You have created sales leader you under the premise of, of there's a probably a better way to to be a manager. What are some of the elements that you focus on and it might be, yeah. So I'll just leave it at that. What are some of the elements that you focus on to help them be better in their prioritization and and effectiveness? One of the things that as a a third party outsider, one of the things that I found is the most valuable service I can provide is to just provide a safe environment for the sales managers to say out loud, I don't know what I'm doing. It, it, it just, I feel like if, if more leaders operated from a place where everything is a hypothesis, as opposed to I'm under pressure to know the answer to everything, that that they they would they would be more effective and they would be less stressed out all the time but sales leaders are in this unique place where they don't feel like they can say that out loud to any person in their whole life they can't say it to their boss cuz they're afraid that'll make them look incompetent they can't say that to their team cuz their team will freak out they can't say it to their spouse because their spouse is like gets all stressed out. Or does that mean you're going to get fired? Like, so they're just, they have this uncertainty and stress and everything about what we do for, you know, in this B2B selling world is complete guesswork. If we're all being honest right now and for them to have to show up in every meeting every day and and put this air across that I am really confident that I know exactly the right moves at all times it builds up this incredible stress and so one of the things that i've discovered is if i can just create an environment where they can just say out loud here's what i'm wrestling with i don't feel like i actually I'm not confident that the choices I'm making of how I spend my time today are the right ones. Then now we've just created this spot where I don't need to tell them, Oh, let me tell you how to go, you know, more of this, less of this. They, they can work through the answers themselves, but they just need a, a safe environment to do that. And so I I think it's really important for sales leaders to ask for coaching, external coaching. And I also think that it is important, even if the companies won't provide it, I think maybe having a, a network, finding a peer that's a sales leader in another company 
that's just going through something similar to you. But you you have to have some kind of support group. Doesn't it mean if somebody will pay for you to get coaching, great. But even if they don't, then go get form your own group. And make it at least once a week where you have some kind of support structure where you can actually say out loud, you know what? I don't, I actually don't think I'm making the right choices and where you can just kind of talk through that out loud and get that off your chest. I can, I, you know, the, uh, that feeling when you have this stress or tension that's been built up, over time. I think probably all of us on the call as we get older and, and don't allow it to build up as much, hopefully, but when you aren't yet aware of this sort of relief and the, the sort of, not even a word, the betterment of, of your sort of soul and person, and then the people around you by association. When I think <laughs> it was like 15 years ago, I, I started saying more and more, um, that was my fault. Like I was, I would apologize. That was a fault of mine. Like I made a wrong decision and I'm sorry. When I started saying that it was such a relief to be able to do that, to not hold. And this is not just business wise. This is personally not to hold that tension and just let this thing build up and solidify because there's a, a risk that I'm going to fall over this, you know, like ledge that you're building of, I gotta be here. I gotta be here. And your point about, the internal dynamics, meaning the internalness of that company is so evident as we say it, but the person is inside of it doesn't you know, recognize it. And the external component is, it's gotta be critical for them. It is. And I, I think when you're under pressure, your perception about how others perceive you is usually even more wrong. <laughs> so I think, I think all of us, there's some difference between how we think others perceive us and how they actually perceive us. But when you're under a lot of stress and in, when you're in a newer role, that gap in perception is more dramatic. And so, you know, a new manager, the story that they're telling themselves about what others think about them is way off. Right. They're telling themselves that everybody's thinking about them all of the time. And they're, you know, and, and they're they're thinking this person can't make it in this role or they're going to, you know, and the reality is nobody's thinking about you nearly as much as you think they are. <laughs> and a lot of their thoughts are not, you know what, Doug, you're Doug's not cut out for this. You know, there's a good chance what they're actually thinking is. Doug's going through all the learning pains that I went through when I was in that role. And it's going to suck for Doug this year, but he's, he's, he's got what it takes. <laughs> and I believe in Doug, right? You just, you just got to have somebody that's, you know, challenging you to call out the crazy stories that you're telling yourself that probably aren't true. It's the, uh, the level of self-doubt, you know, they, you, you hear of, uh, you know, if, if you had a friend that talked about you as poorly as you think about yourself sometimes, or at least as frequently as you have self-doubt, if you had a friend that did that openly, you'd say, you're not a friend of mine anymore. But yet we allow ourselves to talk to ourselves, you know, like to, to have that. Um, and it's just not helpful. You know, it's just not helpful for our development. 
Yeah, I tell you, Doug, that that makes me think of another uh, frequent conversation that I have with sales leaders, which is the other thing that that sales leaders tend to misinterpret. I think sales leaders tend to think that their entire way, the, the, the 100% of the lens by which they're evaluated is their quota attainment. And so they, on the negative side, they will, they will think, okay, if I'm not at my quota attainment, then all of my future opportunities are going to fall apart. But I think it's also true that they, they miss, they assume that if I make my number, it will automatically create opportunities for me. And some of the most disappointed sales leaders that I've ever met with are first line sales leaders who have made their number two or three years in a row and interview for the second level sales leader job and get rejected. And they can't understand how they just sac- they gave up so many sacrifices and they missed a hundred kids sporting events and they maybe got divorced, you know, as a result of them, like literally making their whole life fall apart so they can make that number. And then they're shocked when they discover that just making the number didn't earn them the second level leadership. And in a lot of those cases, I was part of the team that was making the decision of who are we going to choose for that second level leader. And at the second level, all of a sudden, the discussion is less about did Doug make his number three years in a row? And it becomes how did Doug make his number? And if Doug made his number by doing all of these unscalable things and doing everything for his team and stepping in as a hero all over the place and Doug's team was churning, you know, all while Doug was making the number, they, the, the leadership team goes, that will not scale. Now at a second level leader, it becomes, can you reproduce success? And so a lot of first level leaders who have made incredible sacrifices to just make sure they hit the number because they think that's the key to all future opportunities is just making the number. And that's not actually true. How you make your number matters a lot. And it matters more when you're going, you know, somewhere above first level manager. It's interesting too. The point you made earlier, right. Of just kind of like the next logical step in the career from individual contributor to manager, that type of individual, right. Who they probably did everything they possibly could to make their number as an, uh, you know, as an, as an AE or as an individual contributor, right. They pulled out all the stops, did everything they could. And then that just, that behavior kind of carries over into management. Right. And so it's probably the same thing that got their number as, you know, as an individual rep is probably the same thing that's getting their number as a manager, but that doesn't make them again, an executive, uh, an executive level candidate though. Um, yeah, it's interesting. The, how they are successful in the managerial role. What, um, what do you see as some of the things, areas that they focus on if the how is better. And I think some of the things I think about are uh, establishing relationships with each individual at a deeper level that affords you a more solid foundation to then challenge and be challenged. Like that's a thing I think about. So I'm just going to throw my things out there and you can tell me, Doug, actually, this is the one. So some uh, element of relationships and the foundation you have on a personal level, 
the things that they coach, whether they're coaching deals or whether there's a, another element of the development of the individual that they're coaching, um, the amount of data that they look at or leverage in decision-making, right? It's on a spectrum of over-indexing on data and not being able to make decisions on it or uh, sort of on the other end, not any data. And there's probably something in there. And now I don't think that all of those are equally weighted, right? There's some variation and, and we could say they're all important, but what do you see as the preferable how in, in that manager's success? The how that I think is most important and more visible than managers realize is how you hire. So when you become a first level manager, first, like maybe you're getting promoted from individual contributor to manager, probably the very first thing you have to do is backfill your own job. And when you are interviewing and selecting, when you're hiring for your team, that has a, a surprisingly visible impact on your reputation because you're having other people interview those candidates. So if you're, if you're interviewing a candidate, it's rare that a first line manager just is the only person that's going to interview them. You know, maybe you have one of your reps interview them. Maybe you have your sales engineer leader interview with them, but there's some interview team. They're forming their percept. They have their own ideas about what's the right fit for this role. And then they're watching how you justify your hire. And it's one of the things that I think when, when in, in all these times, when we were meeting with, you know, as a, as a group to decide who should become the second level leader, that was a dominant portion of those conversations was the, the hiring part. They're even more than the developing, the developing it certainly in coaching is an, is an important factor, but I think the idea is if you're going to move up to second level now, all of a sudden the team building is, is becomes really critical and you have to scale. And if your process for hiring is broken, when you only have to do one or two or three hires a year, then it gets really scary for us to think of you having to be responsible for hiring 10, 12, 15 reps a year. And so I think one of the most impactful places where you can impact your, the, the way you're perceived as a leader is saying is, is making being really intentional about how you hire and getting lots of feedback and, uh, and showing that you're developing a repeatable process for hiring versus I'm under pressure to meet this number and this seat is open. And so I've just got to fill it and I'm going to yell at the recruiter every day, our internal recruiter, I'm going to yell at them and tell them they're not bringing the right candidates. And then I'm going to, you know, settle on somebody for weird reasons because they can just fill the seat now and get off my plate. You know, that, that hiring and onboarding 
really can se- separate you from the pack because most first line managers have a broken process for how they select talent. And the main reason way that the main way that it's broken is they just want to hire somebody who is going to require the least amount of effort for them on onboarding. I don't want to do onboarding. I'm too busy. And so, you know, if I feel like somebody's a little bit more ready on day one, then I'm going to pick them, even if they're not a fit for what we really need, because I'm just really trying to take work off my plate. What I found was most common when I was at Workday, where, you know, the sales leaders that kept getting promoted and had the best reputation for in the organization. They also had the best reputation for the, the sales enablement team for the amount of engagement they had in the onboarding process. And it became a really powerful predictor of sales leadership. You could look across and the sales leaders who were kind of outsourcing the onboarding and going, I'm too busy. You, you all, take care of my new hire. They were the sales leaders who were churning and the sales leaders who treated onboarding as if it was the most important thing on their whole calendar were the leaders that, you know, not only succeeded in their current role, but they got promoted in, in many cases, multiple times. I I think hiring and, and onboarding are the best way to build a reputation. You can't, I mean, you still need to make your number, but uh, I think if you're, if you build a reputation for being someone who's really intentional about hiring and really engaged in onboarding new hires, uh, I think you can probably build a little bit of slack into your, your number. I think that has a, a really outsized impact on your reputation for leadership in the company. It seems like the the value or risk associated with missing on that element is amplified uh, because of a general inability to and time issues to coach, you know, on skills. Like there's a general challenge given all the things that are being asked to do. The ongoing support is just not a lot of time and perhaps not their strength to do skills development. So now to offset that, it seems like a very valid, valuable focus is to get really good at uh, identifying and supporting this early on development phase to validate what you perceived in the interview process to make an earlier call and thereby creating slack, right? You're creating buffer. I love that. That is where experience comes into play is the sales leader three years in versus the brand new sales leader experience really teaches you about leverage. When you're, when you're a brand new sales manager, you think that everybody that throws that every single chart on the dashboard is worth your equal attention. And every time somebody sends out anything to your inbox, you think you just, I have to give them all equal attention and I have to just scurry around and try to do, be all things to all people. And as you get more experience, you start to learn where 
you can create leverage and you start to, if you're, if you're, if you're getting better at this anyway, you start to find, you know what, where are those opportunities where it's going to be harder for me for two weeks and then it's going to make my life easier for two years. And you start making more trade-offs like that. I think when you're first getting started, you're always just trying to figure out what makes my life easier this week, always. <laughs> and that, that just is a treadmill. And then you get a little bit smarter and you go, yeah, spending more time with this new hire for the next month is going to, you know, be inconvenient. But man, it gives me for the next two years, I get to benefit from doing that right. Because if my new hire gets off to a good start, that has such a huge impact in how long they stay around. And, you know, the people that say, I'm going to blow it off. I just need to get somebody in the seat. I'm busy. And then that new hire gets off to a rough start. And all of a sudden you're filling that position again, six to nine months from now. That's brutal. So I think figuring out where you can find leverage is really the key to success as a sales manager. Billy Bob, the, the term leverage, I, I picked up, um, it's probably four years ago. There was a CRO at a company. His name was Graham Kelly. I think the world of him. He was walking in the hallway and, you know, around the building and said something about, I, it was a casual statement. I'm in the business of creating leverage. And I had never heard anyone said that. And I, and I, because I had appreciated aspects about him when he said something, I listened and, and, and I reflected on it because I had never heard anyone say that. And now I'm constantly thinking about it, not as a way to manipulate anything, but as a way to create more benefit downstream for everyone in the process. And I think about leverage, both in hitting short-term goals, but mainly mid and, and long-term goals. And it's a wonderful thing to, to think about. It helps me, right? It helps me as a young, you know, relatively young person. You know, you know, and, and profession, like you said at the beginning, B2B, we're all sort of guessing a little bit. I, you know, we're guessing. And so in this guess process, I'm trying to figure out how to create leverage so that I can help other people be guessing, you know, more frequently, you know, and estimating and figuring it out. Yeah, I've, I discovered leverage. I, I, at some point, got introduced to systems thinking. I can't remember when I first came across it, but I just immediately, it just immediately resonated with me. And I just obsess about it, getting my hand, anything I can get my hands on to learn more about systems thinking, uh, I love. And so that's one of, that's a key concept of systems thinking is where can I intervene with the most leverage, right? Let me look at the situation and figure out where in this entire system can a small change make a big impact. And systems thinking is really popular in like really unsolvable, huge problems like climate change, where it's really common for people to just throw their hands up and go, this is too big, unsolvable. And systems thinking teaches people to say, no, let's go find where small changes can actually have this, you know, big ripple effect and create uh, an outsized impact. And I think that's the number one challenge for leaders is just figure out, okay, instead of me just reacting immediately, let me just pause for a second and figure out, is there a way that I can intervene in this situation 
with a little bit more leverage than whatever my first instinct is. My first instinct, jump in and just go close the deal myself, pause, wait, can I create a little bit more leverage if I intervene in a different way or in a different place or at a different time? That's a very helpful, very specific thing because the idea of trying to create as much leverage as possible is like, um, you know, uh, uh, being, getting a riddle saying name as many, uh, uh, things that are, are the color white that starts with the letter a, but then when you say, think about your refrigerator and how many things that are in there that are white and name a, with the letter a, you give it a little constraint around it, which is just to say, and you get more out of that list, which is just to say, whatever you're thinking now, what is one thing that can be done different to generate more leverage and more leverage and more leverage? Um, and I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of systems thinking, I can't help, but see, uh, the multi sort of inputs and then the variable equations that are inside of the, the, the dotted box that goes around the system and then the outputs to figure out how to, to generate more. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I, I want to make sure that anyone who's listening understands ways to reach out to you or how, what we've talked about can benefit them or benefit the company that they're working for. So could you talk about, um, sales leader, you and what you're, what you do for organizations and managers? Yeah. Sales leader, you, there's, there's two ways that we're trying to help people out. What we're trying to create is resources, content courses, directly for uh, account executives and sales leaders that just become uh, resources where we just try to put content and ideas out there where they can just at any point tap into it. Uh, but really a primary business is creating is being an extension of sales enablement teams focused on sales leaders. As, as you guys like your you know mission for this podcast, uh, as you called out at the beginning, Tim, uh, it's not the charter of sales enablement teams. Generally, there's kind of a gap. Sales enablement teams are generally focused on individual contributors. And then the, you know, kind of HR led leadership development programs don't fully reflect the constant pressures that sales leaders are under. So there's the sales leaders are, are really a gap in the company's uh, enablement programs. And so we become that extension where the sales enablement team says, we know this is a gap for us. And so we'll come in and, and really run more like a cohort based programs for the sales leaders where we once a week have a group gathering to just talk through issues as a group, but, and then have on demand content that they can access and try to make it a lot of it really short where they can just, we, we understand the demands of their schedule and then augment that with one-on-one -on -one coaching. When we work with groups, like we said earlier, where there is that opportunity to just have a more candid discussion about, you know, what they're uh, navigating. That's perfect. That's perfect. Thank you. Yeah. There's a, obviously just a ton of value there. I mean, just as a, as a enablement professional, uh, it took me a while to kind of learn that 
how often I needed to involve the managers, just kind of on the initiatives that we were tackling and to get their buy-in on what we were doing to help the individual contributors. But there is a, there's a complete gap oftentimes of then actually helping the managers. Right. And so it's a, it's a, it's a different skill set and a totally different initiative. There really is. And I feel like most of the things that I see out there, whether it's generated by the sales enablement teams, or even if you just go Google sales leadership courses, they tend to be really heavily focused on coaching. Mm-hmm. How do you coach the sales process? How do you coach your reps on medic? How do you coach your rep? I I don't ever have, I I talk to hundreds of sales leaders one-on-one. I can't remember a time where they ever asked me to train them on how to coach. They don't describe their problem as I don't know how to coach. They describe their problem as I don't know how to create the space in my weekly Mm -hmm. calendar where I can do coaching. If if that's all my job was, was just coaching. I I know how to do it. (laughs) What I don't know how to do is how in the world to fit it in amongst all the other things that I need to do. And it really comes back to uh, Doug. It's a leverage problem. And I want to, I want to make one more point on leverage that I think is really important on leverage. For example, when we talk about coaching so much of the way that sales managers operate is they're operating from the leverage of one rep at a time, one opportunity at a time. There's no leverage there, right? You you can't, there's no leverage in over and over again, trying to intervene one rep at a time, one opportunity at a time. And if you look at the sale, typical sales manager, they spend a massive amount of their time reacting, trying to rescue deals, one rep at a time, one deal at a time. Meanwhile, what they don't give a lot of attention to where I think there's a lot of leverage is on the team operating rhythm. So how are we going to structure our team meetings? How often are we going to have our team meetings? How are we going to collaborate as a team? Are we going to, what's going to be the way that we interact in Slack or chatter? Like how are we going to share information? There's so much leverage in that team operating rhythm and the team ways of working and it's something that doesn't get touched on at, all, at almost at all in most sales manager curriculums because they're focused on how do you coach, you know, on deals. And I think the sales leaders who are really intentional and put a lot of thought into this is how often we're going to meet as a team. They're thoughtful about the agenda of those team meetings. They're thoughtful about who gets invited to those team meetings. I think, uh, that's, that's an area where I tend to, uh, push a lot of sales leaders to be a lot more thoughtful on the team ways of working as opposed to the individual reps opportunities and coaching them on individual opportunities. So I I think that would be my, uh, hot tip for the Moneyball manager listeners. 
is to to think about your last six weeks of team meetings. And if you found yourself showing up for those team meetings kind of two minutes late and you're inventing what you're going to talk about on the fly and all you talk about is deals every single time, then that's an area where you, you have a lot of opportunity to increase your leverage. Well, that's great. I think that's a, that's a perfect point to, uh, to end on the hot tip, um, giving us a lot to, uh, to digest today, Billy Bob. So thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. We, we got a lot to unpack here, but this is, uh, this has been really fun and, and we hope to have you back. I enjoyed it. Cool. Thanks Billy Bob. Thank you. Thank you.